Dr. Dan's Freedom Forum is on the air. Never send to know for whom the bell tolls. It tolls for thee. Dr. Dan's Freedom Forum is a call to arms for those American patriots who, in the tradition of our founding fathers, will stand up now to defend the Constitution and the liberties that it guarantees to each citizen, to each of us. That is our mission, to explain in a clear and concise manner the direct effect of each issue on the individual, on you personally, not some anonymous being in a distant place, and to define in no uncertain terms the consequences of inaction. Let the battle begin. Welcome to Dr. Dan's Freedom Forum. This is Dr. Dan. Well, this program, listeners, is for you. No matter who you voted for or what political party you belong to, Dr. Dan's Freedom Forum is not about politics. It's about principle. It's not about candidates. It's about conscience and the Constitution. Like the name implies, this is a program about freedom, your freedom, where it comes from, what it means to you, and most importantly, how to hang on to it. You are listening to a very special three-part episode of Dr. Dan's Freedom Forum featuring Dr. Greg Brannon. This is episode two of three. Hope everybody enjoys. Instead of instead of discussing morals, because it's the moral character that comes from Judeo-Christian principles and the Ten Commandments. That's what we're talking about. That's what this country was founded on. It was not founded on a specific set of rights or rules or what you get with religion. It came down to the moral character. And, you know, it's an interesting thing about that. When you talk about morals and how important morals are, in the beginning of this country, when people were moral and virtuous and upstanding, when you went to the butcher and you bought a pound of meat and you specified, I want this cut and I want a pound of it, he gave you exactly what you asked for. You didn't have to question him because we were guided at that point by morals. What happened as we started to lose our moral basis and you could not necessarily trust the butcher to give you what you asked for, especially if you weren't standing there looking over his shoulder, that's when the need for government intervention started. Then they started looking to, oh my God, the morals aren't here. Someone has got to stand up for us. And that's where we started going down that slippery slope where we need, we were requesting big government, bigger and bigger and bigger government, because we could not trust our fellow citizens. And, and the sad part is that uh, uh, Noah Webster, as well as Stokelville and the Rockish America, both quoted about that. They said, sure, government would love to be benevolent, but understand something, it plans to be your master. And that, again, that is the problem is, if, if the butcher did this and we held him accountable, he'd go out of business. See, that's the idea of true freedom to choose, free, true free laissez faire. If the free market, um, Avon Mises' book, Human Action, you know, people try to quantify the Keynesian economics. They try to quantify every part of economics. And he goes up real clear. You cannot quantify and put a mathematical equation on human action. I may choose to buy at this butcher versus that butcher. That is a human action decided by my individual choice. 
if we're guided by central planning and social engineers, then you end up having, uh, you know, these two types of entrepreneurs. You have the, the government entrepreneur or the market entrepreneur. The market entrepreneur wants to make a better widget. The government entrepreneur wants to go to the government to get subsidies to crush his competitor. And that's the kind of things we've got to get away from. It's just we just don't understand this stuff because we've been brainwashed that we can't do anymore. And that's why we have to go back and look at our founders and understand, this is real important to me, is I, I don't understand what does the Constitution mean. Now, to me, now I know what it is. It was a legal contract between 13 sovereign states that formed a contract. And if anybody breaks the contracts, they have the right to hold them accountable to that. And that's the thing we have to understand here. The federal government is a byproduct of the states who are the ones who the individual has as the selective over the sovereign. So that being said, it's not D.C. is over Raleigh. It's Raleigh is over D.C. over those to hold them accountable for those functions. And we've turned it around because we sit around and say, okay, so my question is for those people who don't understand state sovereignty or state rights or individual law, law sovereignty is, okay, then what is your plan of attack when the federal government usurps its power? What is your attack? Because I don't hear anything from Raleigh or Albany or Sacramento or any other places around here that say when the government usurps its power, what does the state do to protect the, the position? And that's why I go back to Jefferson and Madison and nullification in a position. They say the state's role and obligation is to hold the federal government accountable to its contract and compact. And that is the crux we're at today with nationalized health care, with NDAA, with uh, all these kind of, with Agenda 21, these kind of things that are infringing on what, again, are nailable rights. We have to hold accountable the government at every level, sir. Absolutely. And, you know, their concept was what you stated. We are a union of sovereign states. And if we are to regain uh, the America that was created 230 years ago, the states have got to pick up and take charge of their future, take charge of their citizens, and to give their citizens the security that comes from fighting back against an all-power federal government that is usurping power at an alarming rate. I would like to read two quotes from two North Carolina founders, but the first thing is, in, in, the, in 1768, I think it was, Earl Schausberger of, a, of Massachusetts was talking about a constitution. Today we hear a lot of people say about living constitution, the Woodrow Wilson idea of living, which means it's movable and changes. And he quotes, he says, a fixed constitution, a fixed one, is what all lovers of liberty want. Because in a fixed constitution, you can always go back to the written word because the legislative get their just powers from what is written. If they go outside that, then they actually undercut their own foundation. So that's important to me. And I, I, I want to read two quotes from two founders of North Carolina in 1788 who, um, who were, they, these, men, these men were Federalists who wanted the Constitution answering questions of anti-Federalists who are worried about p- people doing implied powers. One is Archibald McLean of North Carolina. And he says, If Congress should make a law beyond the powers and the spirit of the Constitution, should we not say to the Congress, you, you have no authority to make this law? There are limits beyond which you cannot go. You cannot exceed the power prescribed by the Constitution. You are amenable to us for your conduct. This act is unconstitutional. We will disregard it and punish you for the attempt. Where are those leaders in our state today? 
And one more quote, James Iredell, again, who became on the first Supreme Court Justice of North Carolina uh, that Washington put on there. If Congress, under pretense of exercising the power delegated to them, should, in fact, by the exercise of any other power, usurp upon the rights of the different legislators or any other private citizen, the people will be exactly in the same situation as if they've expressed provision against this power. It would be an act of tyranny. And later on, he goes on later and says, if any act is done, you ship the power, it is null and void. So, sir, that's my question today. What happens when, they, when the, uh, the federal government at the legislative branch passes a bill that the executive signs that the Supreme Court says is now law on the land that is unconstitutional? Do we sit and take it? Or do we say, no, you overstepped your bounds, and we will punish you for doing it, like our founders did. That's the minimum we need today, sir, is understand the written rule of law. And you know, that is such a critical argument. Uh, the quotes were perfect. The argument is, is, is absolutely perfect. Because that concept of a fixed constitution is what the Supreme Court has just marched away from. You're listening to part two of three of this exclusive interview with Dr. Greg Brandon on Dr. Dan's Freedom Forum. We're going to take a quick commercial break. Don't go anywhere. We'll be right back after this. You're listening to a very special three-part episode of Dr. Dan's Freedom Forum featuring Dr. Greg Brandon. This is episode two of three. Hope everybody enjoys. When they stop referring back to the original document for rulings, and opinions. That's when they allowed us to go astray. They have led us astray by not relying on the word, content, intent, and meaning of that original Constitution. You, know, oh, yes, you, can, argue, you can argue all you want, and people argue about where these decisions come from and what the meaning was and the intent. But my point is, is when it comes to the Constitution, first of all, the Supreme Court is not supposed to interpret it. The words are there, and if you want to understand what the words are, you need a dictionary that was present at the time the Constitution was written. We all know that words change with meaning over time. So if you go back and say in the dictionary of the late 1700s, this word regulate meant to make run smoothly, you understand it didn't mean for the government, the federal government, to come in and make rules and laws and all kinds of red tape that that paralyze business, and make criminals out of common people. Well, that's the thing. Go ahead. That's the thing you talk about. You know, we didn't have government by judiciary. And when you look at what the legislative branch does, it makes laws, and if it goes outside its fixed law, it undercuts its authority. We got that. We got the executive branch only only has 13 functions, and none of them has to do with health care, none has to do with, with, with uh, the economy, none has to do with actually any bills, all appropriations are from the House, and then you have the judicial branch, and the function of branch is only to give its opinion. John Marshall said it's all it's supposed to do is give the opinion. He says there is no precedent. Precedent means nothing. We don't care about precedent. We go back to the four corners of the piece of paper that it's written on. Now, why is that important? Is in Federal Paper 78 and 81, Hamilton himself goes, he says, there is no, um, nothing that is in the spirit of the Constitution. There's no preumbrums. There's none of that stuff. It is, the, the, the Supreme Court is the bulwark. It's the, it's, the, it's the dam that stops any legislative branch from overstepping its bounds by just saying its opinion. It has no forceful power, but tells its opinion. 
But he says, but how do you hold the judicial accountable? He says, that's easy. If they ever have their bounds, they're impeached. He says, this is perfect because nobody would ever have their bounds. They don't want to be impeached. So we've thrown away the most vital tool we have is the power of impeachment from the House. An executive branch, judicial branch, hold people accountable. They all three don't hold each other accountable. And that's my question. And that was Madison's question, and that was Jefferson's question in 1798. What happens when all three overstep their bounds? Then you've got to go back again to the 18th century definition of the word constitution and what it meant to the compact and hold them accountable. That's what we must do today. And the only power the state has today in protecting the individual is nullification. Fifteen states thus far nullified nationalized health care. We must nullify an unconstitutional act. The supremacy clause, that's Article 6, Section 2, uh, Clause 2, is only supreme in things that are pursuant of the Constitution. If anything is not pursuant, as James Yardell says, it is null and void, sir. That is where I want to see our so-called leaders in, in Raleigh, if their plan is to genuflex to the federal court, that, the federal court, the federal executive branch, and the federal Congress, that is not their role. Their role, as Archibald McLean says, is to stand strong and say, no, you've overstepped your bounds, not in this state. And that's really the point of where we need to go. And, and that's why I think the topic that we need to discuss, and I know you are a well-versed expert in this, is the discussion of nullification. First of all, people will tell you it's not legal. And I know that you, that you know that's not true. I know that's not true. And nullification was used by the founders, the writers of the Constitution itself. Tell us about the history of nullification. The nullification is interesting. Again, I use James Yardell court on purpose because here's a man in 1780 on the word Marcus who becomes a Supreme Court justice that his words were, if the Congress ever usurps its power, it's null and void. How clear is that? But the idea of nullification, again, I go back to the definition of independence. That is a nullification of our deal with England. So that is the American spirit of saying no to laws that are against enable rights against nature's law. When you know it infringes on you as a human being, that's when it's our time to say no. Now, the nullification was the Sedition Act of 1798, the Three Alien Sedition Acts, which the this is more of a, a party, not a constitution, but a party. The Federalist Party was in power, and they wanted to keep stay in power. So they wanted nobody to badmouth any federal decisions concerning the quasi-war with France. You had the Francophiles, and you had the uh, pro-British side. So when they controlled the, the judicial, the executive, and the, and, the, and the legislative, they passed these laws. And interesting, the only, only federal uh, officer you could actually badmouth in public was the vice president, who was uh, a Republican, Thomas Jefferson, which is very interesting. But so Jefferson and Madison get together and go, okay, so what do you do when this oversteps their bounds, when, when the federal government does this? And he goes, well, that, what you do is you go back to the rule, written rule and you, and you find it, and if that doesn't work, then what you do is you go back to the rule of the compact. The compact, again, goes back to the idea that the states are the sovereign agents of the contract to protect the individual because the agents of the contract are the ones with the power, not the byproduct of it. So the byproduct is the federal government. They don't have the power to act upon themselves say what this means. That is, that's, that's circular reason. That's ridiculous. Well, they went back to that. So what they did with the nullification was they said, okay, no. We, we say no to this. Now, what happened was 
the American people you know, saw this revolt. What happened in 1800, the Federals lost their power, the Republicans took over, because the people said they saw this usurpation of power, and the Federals never won an executive office ever again, because they overstepped their bounds when they were in power. You know, and yeah. one of the things that they, the Alien and Sedition Acts were a direct, direct uh, violation of the First Amendment, because it's it, it for forbid people from saying things, which was what the First Amendment was all about. Uh, exactly. Congress should make no law. And what it was, was, it was interesting, is they went after papers that were pro-France and not after papers, papers that were pro, uh, pro-England. And interesting, in, when, Jeff, when Jefferson won his, in his first inaugural, um, Governor Morris actually penned the Constitution, was upset because he was a Federalist, and he actually started the New Haven Convention. took 14 years. They were actually having that New England was, was going to secede and go on their own. And what did Jefferson say in his first inaugural? We wish you well. We part as friends if that occurs. Completely different. And then when people talk about nullification was used for slavery, here's what's interesting. In the South Carolina uh, grievances, when they wanted to see in 1860, one of their grievances was that the North, particularly Wisconsin, nullified the Fugitive Slave Act. They were ticked off at that. It was used by, uh, in the Glover case, 1857, by Wisconsin. Wisconsin saying, we are not going to recognize the, 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 uh, the Fugitive Slave Act. Not in our state. Mr. Joshua Glover is not a piece of property. He's a human being. And that it was you. Yeah, go ahead. Sorry. Yeah, you, you go, sir. Well, I was saying that was actually a case in which the Supreme Court of a state, Wisconsin, the Supreme Court of Wisconsin nullified a Supreme Court decision of yes, the sir. federal Supreme Court. That, right. to me, is, is such an incredible piece of information. And that yes, shows you how they understood back then, they understood that this was the way, this was the ticket to maintain cons- the Constitution against federal usurpation of power. They exactly. understood this was the tool that our founders wanted them to use. Yeah, and it's interesting because then, then there's a paper it's in 1832 that, Jefferson, uh, that Madison wrote saying that Jefferson never used the word nullification. Now, don't, now Madison goes back and forth when you read his papers. You know, he was pro-Constitution early on where he wrote the federal papers with Hamilton and Jay, and then later on when he saw the power with the alienation that became a more of a Jeffersonian and, you know, when, you know, then himself, he started the Bank of the United States, the second bank. So you can see his pol- he was more of a political, you know, chameleon back and forth. But in 1832, when he said, you know, Jefferson never used the word nullification, when he's handed the original draft of the Kentucky Resolution in Jefferson's handwriting, he, he backed off. And then he said, okay, here's the thing is, it is the final step. The first step is you go to the ballot box. If that doesn't work, then you go to the actual written rule of the Constitution. If that doesn't work, then you go back to the states to actually be the states that will be the nullification or the inter- He called it actually in 18, 1798 in the Virginia Resolution, he called it the state legislators are duty-bound to interposition between the individual and the federal government. So he actually, actually wrote a four-step protocol of how you get to that point. And he, was, and he said it wasn't over every you know, trivial thing. It was things that were extra-constitutional when, when a branch overstepped its bounds. Because you think logically... If you and I have a contract, Dr. Dan, and I break it, you, I'm, I'm, I'm accountable to that. And that's why we have the rule of law, not the rule of men. And that's crucial to this, sir, because, again, I'm, lately in my debates, I've been spinning around saying, okay, if nullification is not the proper tool, then, sir, what is the proper tool? And that concludes this week's episode of Dr. Dan's Freedom Forum. Tune in next week for part three 
of this exclusive conversation with Dr. Greg Brannon. Join the battle on our website, www.drdansfreedomforum.com. The right to own private property that cannot be arbitrarily confiscated by the government is the moral right and constitutional basis for individual freedom. Me original sin. Me railroad steel.